Hi, Sharath. Welcome to the Connected Generation podcast. So great to have you here. Really great to be here, Nikki. So such a such a pleasure, and I'm sort of jealous seeing you in sunny Lagos now. So you know, very <laughs> cold and wet. Uh, we're, we're in London. It does look a little bit sunny though, <laughs> from the background, unless it's just like light or something. Lighting, I think, more than anything. <laughs> um, just for the um, interest of. Um, the listener, can you just introduce yourself and tell us more of your story? I know you are big on intrinsic motivation and you're an expert in that in that field, but just more on your story on why you're so passionate about that and what led you to this space. Thanks, Nikki. So, yeah, so I, I started really my, my work over the last eight or nine years um, has been in Africa and India, uh, though East Africa, particularly in Uganda. Um, and one of the questions I've been trying to figure out with the organization I founded called Spur Education has been how do we get uh, public school teachers to reignite their mojo and fall back in love with their their job again? Mm. And it feels like um, it's so critical because I think in, in Nigeria and parts of Africa, you know, governments have built so many schools. In India, the, the government has built a million schools, which is incredible, actually, and you know, they're free to access. But a lot of the challenges, once the child goes into school, mm. will they see a teacher who really wants to be there, who cares about them, who'll be a great role model? And it wasn't um, uh, an issue really about money. Um, certainly in Uganda, teachers are not paid that well, but in other countries, um, you know, India had many increases in pay, but that still wasn't really solving the problem there. And we, we started off in, in Delhi in 2012, with a small experiment with just about 25 teachers and seeing what would happen. And we realized that actually a lot of this is about rekindling their ideas around purpose, why they're there um, in the first place. And that wasn't often clear to many teachers, which, which is surprising, right? But actually it wasn't something we were doing a great job of, of really reinforcing. They didn't have a, a strong sense of autonomy. They felt they couldn't change things in their classrooms. And there was no no sense of being able to develop mastery. So how could you get better and better as a professional? Um, so we started to work on those elements and build um, a model of bringing teachers together regularly to reinforce that purpose autonomy mastery, which the research says is really the key drivers of us feeling motivated in whatever we do. Uh, we've now reached uh, about 200,000 teachers in those networks, about um, 35,000 schools. And what, what it made me realize was there's a huge applicability of these insights to other domains of life, um, because many of the same challenges appear in other work domains, in family firms, in entrepreneurship, all of these things. So really excited uh, to have a chance to talk more with you about these today. But that's kind of how the whole story sort of started. That's so amazing that um, completely different geographic location, industry, and I already see so many similarities between you know, your work and this conversation on next gen, all things next gen and family businesses. So today's episode is a bit different. You're putting me on the hot seats. I'll be sweating with you as well. So, so, so. I am, <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> so fire away with the questions. Yeah, yeah, no, fire away. No, so, so I think when uh, you and I connected uh, a little a few weeks ago and just talking about some of the, the, the generational issues, um, mm. family firms in Nigeria and other parts of Africa, face i think there were these issues seem to be really top of mind um and i guess one of the questions i was really going to ask about is your own journey and how you got into this i know you, you know, came also from quite a different background into this and 
what's been driving you first of all It'd be really really interesting to hear mm. so my own journey i um started off well my life i was born in nigeria left nigeria at nine moved to the uk and relocated um, back to nigeria at age 24 after a brief career in accountancy the joys in deloitte <laughs> where i was working in corporate tax international and really at that point in my life in that season in my life i think i was really driven by beasting the corporate ladder that was what was my motivation i was single at the time you know i really cared a lot about what others thought of me and I don't feel liberated to live out a life that I truly desire for myself, you know, and I also didn't want to rock the boat too much to draw attention to myself. And, but at the same time, I was deeply unmotivated and unsatisfied working and just passionless in what I was doing. And I remember having a conversation with my dad and saying, he was asking me, where do I see myself in a few years? I was like, honestly, not here, but I don't know where. And it then he then suggested me coming to Nigeria to shadow him and meet other people to figure out what I really wanted to do and then move back to the UK and get an MBA. And, but when I came back and, you know, moved to Nigeria, I really just loved it. It was such a surprise because, you know, from age nine to 24, we'd been visiting. And when I'd visit, I was just like, countdown, I've got nine nights and eight days <laughs> in, in Nigeria, countdown to go back to the UK, because that was my life, right? My friends, my, and everything. And, but when I came, you know, to shadow him, it was a different experience. It was, I saw the entrepreneurial world, mm. which to me just was so magnetic and electric. And it was just so freeing. There was just so much possibility that I saw through the lens of an entrepreneur, you know, freedom to not necessarily follow this prescribed path or this mold, but to actually even sometimes pioneer this path, you know, freedom to dare to create and to dare to dream. And yes, and it was, I just loved it. And, you know, started working with him and formalized the appointment into the family business. And I would say that I had a, you know, turning point in my life when, we got married and had children. When I had children, I started to see life very differently. My mindset completely changed. Mm. I started to envisage what kind of world do I want my children to grow up in? And I started to think about what kind of opportunities do I want for them? How, do, how can they be empowered to be world shapers and solutionaries, right? I didn't want them to be left out from that global conversation. And, you know, wealth is an enabler, right? It opens doors and it enables one to even be a solutionary, not just a consumer. And I didn't want another generation to come and go where all they cared about was just, do I have enough bread? Mm. <laughs> and climbing this ladder that society had told them to. And so it started making me think a lot about legacy mm. and giving back. And, you know, by this stage, I'm in my 30s. And I think there's something really freeing about the 30s. Last week, I had a friend of mine on the podcast, Kay Jagadir, and we were talking about the freedom of being in your 30s. In my 20s, I felt very restricted. And I felt mm. 
um, compelled to follow the mold. But in my 30s, I had clarity on my purpose mm. and courage to actually pursue that purpose. So yeah, that's really my journey. And that's what led me to start mentoring other next gens. Mm. I really believe that next gens are so critical to the future of Africa and the world at large. Mm. And I really believe that they, they are yet to recognize that potential that they have within themselves. And I really believe that family businesses have a huge role to play mm. in Africa, economically, socially, and in leaving a legacy. And that's really what drives a lot of my work is to leave a legacy as well, mm. to give back to the community and to provide solutions. So that's a little bit about my journey. Fascinating. Can I, can I dig in a bit? Like you say, we'll, we'll talk yeah. about some of the parallels to other, other, other entrepreneurs and family um, firms as well in a second. But just curious, like, was, was your dad, um, was it always, was Deloitte always the, the goal or was it to sort of pursue? I'm just curious how, you know, if you can, like, I can ask mm. how, how were you raised? What was, what was the, the goal mm. actually when you were growing up? I just always kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was one of those that, you know, choose your GCSEs. I don't know. Choose your A-levels. I don't know. And someone, I can't remember who suggested choosing economics for A-level. And I did. And I was like, mm, this seems cool. And I remember the module, particularly on economic development, that really struck me. Mm-hmm. Because um, whenever we come to Nigeria, you know, the the inequality, the wealth inequality, or the the rate of poverty is quite telling, right? Mm. And so it was then that ignited something in me to be part of the solution to that. Mm. And in my naivety as a young teen, I thought, you know, IMF, World Bank, IFC, mm. you know, all these organizations, that's the only way I can make an impact. Again, still kind of thinking about the fame of you know, trying to beast out this ladder that mm. society or people, friends and family would expect me to, the accomplishments type side of things. And I remember I applied to all of those organizations and I didn't get in. And then it was like, okay, you know what, part of that, mm. what other career would be suitable <laughs> for someone of my clout and of my education? And it was three options, investment banking, um, management consulting or professional services and I just remember saying investment banking I had a family friend that was a banker and we never saw her and she always looked depressed I was like I'm not I'm not doing that um, <laughs> and then um, consulting it sounded really interesting but the whole moving around thing was just like no nah. I, I really and I treasure my work-life balance and seeing my friends and my family that's really important to me and so it was just literally by elimination, okay, big four. And I applied and I got into, I think I got into all but one. And I just really took a liking for Deloitte. Um, I interned there and then I started working there. So that was my journey. It was never like I knew from a young age, I want to be an accountant. Mm. It was very much circumstantial. Um, yeah. I know a lot of parallels in, in our lives as well. I think in, in, I spent maybe not days in India, but weeks in India every summer, and so very, 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 very um, so it's really, really nice to hear as well. And what 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 got you off the the ladder? Because you said in your twenties, talked about being liberated in your thirties. Was there some? Did you wake up at thirty and suddenly the world seemed different, or what was there? What was the realization that sort of uh, got you able to 
allowed you to get off it, basically? Well, I got off it at 24, actually, because I was in Deloitte from 21 to 24. And it was then that gradual, when I came back to Nigeria to shadow my dad, and it was supposed to be three months, I never left. Mm-hmm. I just got sucked into the system. I just loved, I loved the culture, the entrepreneurial culture. I loved the freedom. As a young black female in the UK, I always felt like I was, I had to always explain myself. Mm-hmm. Or I had to always excuse myself, right? Um, I felt like there was no space for me and I was kind of squeezing my way into a system. Mm. Does that make sense? There was not, I didn't really have much explicit outward racism. I just didn't feel like I belonged. And I didn't feel like the working culture in the city of London was accommodating towards me. And, but I just couldn't put my finger on precisely what do I want in my career? What lights me up? I couldn't tell you that. And so I thought, okay, um, let me buy some time. (laughs) Let me come to Nigeria for three months and follow dad around and his friends, figure out like what industry is interesting. Whilst I was putting an application in for my MBA at London Business School, and the idea was after the three months in Niger, I was supposed to go traveling mm. and um, discover more of myself there. Um, but I just, I found myself when I got to Nigeria and nine years plus later, I'm still here. Amazing, amazing. And then just uh, on, on the whole question, I just really wanted to dig into that question about in, in the city of London, you didn't feel, um, I don't know, as welcome is the right word or... And you said it wasn't overt racism, but just what, what was it? It just, it's just really, I mean, it's depressing, but I just wanted to understand like a bit more about mm. what might have. Might have I, it didn't really originate from City of London. It was my whole experience in the UK. Mm. Okay. okay. Um, I, I left here at nine, like I said, and we moved to Milton Keynes. At the time, Milton Keynes was not diverse. It's very different now. Mm. Um, and I went to an all girls private school in Bedford, um, which wasn't very diverse either. Mm. Um, I, whilst I had friends that I really love till today, they're still like my closest, you know, I think the friends you make during your childhood, you can't replace those friends, like in your adulthood, they're completely, they're my sisters, essentially. I just never felt like I fit in Mm -hmm. from my name. (laughs) Always. I just felt like I always had to explain or excuse myself from the the things that I did at home, the food that I would eat, our culture, I felt that it wasn't mainstream. It wasn't um, something that a lot of people had encountered. And so it was always, I don't, the word is not shame, but just always kind of like, what's that? What's that about? Like, that's my life. That's my culture. That's who I am. And you, you then end up, having kind of like a split personality where when you're out in society, you have a persona to blend in. And then when you're back home with your family who have a different viewpoint Mm. in terms of they're not as, they're not assimilated into the culture as much as you are. Um, You have to kind of revert back to your, your, um, your native roots. Mm even though you don't really fit in with that, right? Because your reality is very different. So 
it was just this whole experience of being a misfit. I think that's the way to, to explain it. Not necessarily that, I mean, not to say I didn't have incidents of people being racist to, to me. I did, but those were not um, prominent or very frequent. Mm. It was just, I didn't feel like I fit in. And I felt like in the city of London, there, I didn't see many f- people like myself mm. as, at partner level. I didn't see firstly females talk less of, I think I was the only black person in my department of 85. Um, And in the whole corporate tax, there were about 400 of us. I think there was another, there was another girl and there was another guy. Um, It wasn't very diverse. And I mean, yeah, so that was really it. It was just really feeling like a misfit. And do you think um, other are the next gens that you work with now? I mean, I'm sure many of them have probably been educated in the UK or other places and some of the prominent family firms in the country. Is, that, is this a common common experience, do you think, or is this a...? It is a common experience. And actually, I think the misfit experience mm-hmm. in abroad is great training. <laughs> for the family business as an action because like it's like you don't fit in anywhere that's the feat a lot of the the common feeling is you can feel like founders are all the way over there yeah yeah. the non-family staff all the way over there and then the siblings are not in the business over the way over there it's like well i'm kind of used to not fitting in yeah, it's a very common experience, particularly dealing with the transition of moving back to your home country, mm. but not necessarily even fitting in in your home country because you've been so out of the system and you um, have a very different worldview. Mm. Um, you have a very um, internationalized worldview that doesn't necessarily fit in with the context of the family business yeah so a lot of the conversations you might be or things you might be pushing for as an ex-gen might just be falling on ears that like you don't know what you're talking about this is not how we do things and yeah interesting and it sounds like your dad was so your dad was he was with you in the uk when you're growing up no he was not so he he stayed back and ran the business the whole time so he my mom then moved back three months before i moved back Got Once it. my youngest brother went to university. Got it, got it. Ken, and how did he, um, it sounds like, I mean, if you stayed nine years and not, not three months, that was pretty uh, remarkable. And what did he do? Was it conscious what he did to sort of help you? Um, I mean, did he want you to stay first of all? I guess maybe that was a, a first question. Was that? Yeah, it was a conscious decision by my parents that we relocate for our education. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, sorry, when I, I think, when you went back to family business, like, you know, that's it. Like, yeah. Oh, that wasn't planned. <laughs> that was just kind of like come home for a, a few months or a few weeks, however long you want, figure mm-hmm. it out, and then you can go back. I mean, I still had my flat in London. I still had my car. I still had so many things. And the whole point was, I I felt I was applying to business school. Yeah. Um, my life was was in the UK. I I never thought. I would end up so entrenched mm. in the business. I don't think he did either, but it was just this natural, organic thing where it was, I had the skills yeah. that the business and the family office required at that point in time. Mm. And, the, and, and the work was extremely fulfilling and interesting for me. So it was extremely organic. It wasn't planned. Like I said, he just said, why don't you just come for a few weeks and just kind of, 
um, shadow a few people and learn more about different industries and have conversations and gain more clarity. That was the conversation. But um, very quickly, um, it was apparent that it was a great fit. And what you talked about working fulfilling, what, what made it fulfilling? What, what do you think really sort of, it sounded like London wasn't in that sense. And just what was, what was really different and powerful? Those three points that you mentioned at the start. So tell me more of the purpose side. So maybe what, 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 mm. what, what made it feel purposeful? What made it feel purposeful was knowing that I was contributing towards providing financial security, not just for myself, but mm. my family, who obviously I love, um, and generations to come. Mm-hmm. And that what also made it feel very purposeful was knowing against this context of so much poverty here. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've been passionate about that um, since my teens, but I just didn't know the tools how to really impact that space. Mm. I naively thought it had to be through a policy route. Mm. Um, was seeing firsthand that the business carrying its activities is not in like this evil capitalism mm. view that, the media, the Western media that I had been consuming was pushing for, but actually it was almost providing, it was social solution, mm. providing jobs for those that otherwise may lack jobs. Unemployment rates are about 27% over here currently. We have 84 million people in living in absolute poverty in Nigeria. Our population is about 200 million, so it's quite significant. And knowing that the work that I was doing was providing food on the table to families and empowering families was really purposeful and also legacy. So back to, you know, like I said, I went through a bit of a journey and um, having the children really changed my mindset. And I began to see that actually the family business could be a great avenue to pass on a family name um, and also pass on our culture. pass on our values and also provide a role in communities so that was really what made it purposeful was and also I felt more at this at the helm of the activity yeah not on the periphery with all the crap (laughs) not the admin (laughs) yeah which speaks the autonomy side doesn't it as well exactly but it's interesting, like, often I know, I mean, especially fathers and daughters, I guess, um, and you know better than I do, but there's often that reluctance to give space um, mm. on the autonomy side, right? And you know, take, you know, when a younger generation comes in, mm. was that was that something that you had to fight for or negotiate very hard? Or was it, did it come naturally? I'm just curious. I'm not sure if there's another sibling involved already or not, but mm. how did that work? So, no, when I moved into the business, my dad was the only one working in the business. So I was the first family member coming in. It was a mixed story. In some regards, I was given such a free hand, particularly with the family office. Um, that was like my jurisdiction. I, was, I had the you know, certification in accountancy. I was chartered and I, I was reading, I was doing my CFA as well. Right. Um, so that was like kind of like my jurisdiction. So I had a lot of freeway with that, coming up with strategy, staffing, ops and things like that. But in the, in the realm of the family businesses, it was quite different. Um, my dad still um, was very much in control. Right. And it was very much the decisions were, were made by himself. And, you know, initially, I naively tried to mimic his style of leadership. Mm. 
which did not work for me. <laughs> um, I wrote, I did a, an episode on this and wrote an article on why authoritative leadership is an epic fail for young next chance. We just don't have the legitimacy to, um, and the source of power under, you know, leading through um, authoritative style because we lack the experience and we don't have the age on our side. Whereas I, I quickly learned that I had to lead by persuasion. I had to lead through influence. And it wasn't necessarily about being seen and barking orders, mm. but it was really about being able to change people's hearts and minds to, to get them to see my viewpoint and get true buy-in. Yeah. So, so, so it sounds like one, one thing that was very powerful was this idea of carving out part of the, the office rather than the business and mm. giving that, giving you more autonomy there, which is really powerful. But mm-hmm. it did not feel a bit strange for your dad, I guess. You know, but one part of the, the sort of family, um, uh, I don't know, empire, if you like, which is being one culture is being, you know, taken up, which is more, you know, probably a bit softer, a bit mm-hmm. more persuasive, got another side, which is, you know, fairly commander control, you know, more directive. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any, Attentions that came from that, you know, just having oh, yeah. that. That's a really great point. The cultures in the family, the culture in the family office, and the culture in the family business is very different, mm. and markedly so, especially where we would have situations where we would second stuff from the family office to um, the family business. Uh, we have a couple of businesses mm. and some investee companies as well. It would it would create a bit of an issue. But really, over time, we found a way to kind of work around that. Mm-hmm. We are going through a journey of formalizing both on the family business and on the family office side. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm going through a journey of myself of moving away from operations to strategic, moving away from the business and the wealth management into to chair the family council. Right. So I'll be really behind the scenes as a change agent behind the scenes and working on, um, you know, decision-making processes, right. boards of directors, a delegation process that really wouldn't be about me nor dad, mm-hmm. but really be about what's the collective vision as a family unit that we want for these different units and um, who can we empower to carry on that vision essentially yeah that sounds amazing and it sounds like that's i mean it's quite a jump i mean from what i would normally expect right from a uh, certainly in india that would just would not be very very common as well and and i'm just curious um what, what helped you like in terms of your own mastery when you came in i mean your dad was there obviously but you're already taking a very different path you hadn't mm-hmm. worked that long right i mean to be honest you had a few years and mm-hmm. you came mm-hmm. in, um, into this and you know, how did you sort of figure all this out and you didn't do the LBA. I didn't do the MBA, right? And so I didn't. Yeah, I, didn't. So, so, so. I did the real MBA, as my yeah, dad says. University of Life, right? Is that John Major? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's uh, yeah? How did you how did you figure all this out? Ooh, networks. Mm-hmm. So associations. I am a big learner, and so I got plugged in into industry groups. I got plugged into Institute of Directors and I was just constantly soaking in information and just learning about our industry, about, you know, my soft skills, my leadership skills. And I joined YPO, which has been phenomenal, Young President's Organization. 
absolutely amazing for leadership development, skills building, um, community. And I would say the biggest one is mentoring. Mm. I believe everyone needs a mentor. I have several, <laughs> not just one. They have been, aside from obviously my dad, because the thing is, as next gens, we are entering a different um, paradigm. Mm -hmm. So what the family business needs at this stage is completely different from what it needed at inception or in the first generation. And we have to be cognizant of that and we have to get equipped in those relevant skills. So, yeah, I believe that there's no level of success where we've, so to speak, made it and we will never be um, imparted, you know, or, you know, people will pour into us. Right. That's the biggest fallacy that the media lies to us and says that, you know, um, no, we have to be humble mm. and realize that there's always a new level of success, whatever success is, you mm. know, that's another conversation. And in trying to achieve our goals, there are people that have been there, done that, gotten a t-shirt and have made mistakes along their journey why fumble around in the dark and make those same mistakes when you can be under their tutelage and get all the shortcuts? <laughs> okay, I don't want all that stress and drama. How can I get to my destination in the fastest possible way? So yeah, I've, I have mentors. I'm part of um, leadership circles. Mm -hmm. uh, YPO has been incredible. I'm part of another one called Argonauts, okay. um, which has been incredible as well. And I'm constantly learning, constantly going for short courses, mm. not necessarily an MBA, yeah, but yeah. three day, four days, soft skills, hard skills. Um, yeah, to keep yeah. developing yeah. stuff. Yeah, I guess when you come into a family business, I guess the pressure is always, you know, we've got to get things moving. There's so much day to day stuff. It seems like you really carved out the time to invest in yourself, to step back, to have the, um, mm. the mentors. And I'm curious, did they, did you ask them formally? Was it? An informal piece was it? How did they? Was it? What, what, what was in it for them in terms of the situation? Formal. I formal. mean, um, I have paid. Mm. I'm on paid programs where okay. so there's the mentors actually make time. Okay, got it. Got it. Yeah, and we have programs, so objectives mm. and goals, and they keep me accountable. Okay. Um, and you know, coming from the context of Deloitte, which one of the brilliant things about Deloitte was the learning environment was just so yeah. rich and amazing. We had courses all the time. We were constantly being developed. And I think so when I came into the family business and it was very different, right? It was yeah. quite informal. I had to create that system for myself. And that was what I was really replicating was mm -hmm. I remember we had training calendars and we would have soft skills and we would have team building. We would have, you know, yeah. harder skills and things like that. And I just had to create that for myself. Yeah. Very powerful. So, yeah, I mean, what I'm taking away, I think, from this side is, is more, uh, we'll talk about like what advice there is for other entrepreneurs, but the, the idea then of um, that purpose, I think, being very strong, that you came in with that sense of a, a family legacy, but also wider impact on, on Nigeria overall. I think seeing that um, almost the business force of good seems a, seen a very strong theme. I think it was really interesting stuff around how your dad, uh, carved out a bit of the the family whatever jewels empire to to give you space to do it and to almost give you freedom to uh and for you to also take it though but to create a different culture and, and to really make that different and then it seems that like that sort of permeated the rest of the 
um, uh, the business as well over, over time as well, which is really interesting how you're now systematizing that. Mm-hmm. And I love this idea of also just investing and taking control of our own development in a way that yeah. is kind of, yeah, would have been put on your on our plate, I guess, at Deloitte, but mm-hmm. almost consciously time in actually putting real money behind it and time, of course, as well. Quite, quite powerful lessons. And I'm just curious, I mean, you seem to really got into a good groove with your own family business, but now you're trying to sort of, not trying to, but you're actively advising successfully others on this journey. I'm just curious what 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 made you go down that path rather than say, let's really focus and get, you know, get my own family ship in order as it were. Mm, mm. I mean, I'm a big believer in um, service. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in um, giving back in community. And I strongly, I know that this is my life purpose because I'm just so obsessed with this. It's not normal. <laughs> Myself and Sissy are so obsessed with this space. Like it's, 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 okay. it's just where passion meets purpose and, yeah. you know, and obviously there's a lot of housekeeping to do in our family business, it's not all rosy, particularly COVID-19 mm-hmm. and 2020, which has been a very interesting year for everyone. Yeah. But there's a fulfillment that, one gets when one serves that you really don't get when all you think about is your situation mm-hmm. and yourself and it's onto this whole conversation on transformational leadership mm-hmm. right do we how you know what's the definition of a leader is it someone that's been formally placed in authority mm-hmm. or are we all leaders and we're supposed to take um you know, ownership for driving change, whatever spaces and places that we desire to. And I think I believe in the latter, right? It was just so heavy on my heart that when we look at the economics of Nigeria, 90% of our GDP is private sector, 90% of businesses are indigenous businesses, only 2% move past generation one, and a huge piece is next-gen development. And, you know, it was like my whole life journey was, you know, it seemed to be for this. And I'd begun my certification as a family business advisor. Really, the, the, the motivation was to help our family through the family's journey. But it became very clear to me that actually there are so many others that are on a similar path as us that really require a lot of help. Yeah. Not necessarily the ultra high net worth, um, down to your small mom and pop shops, mm. um, your trading outfits who probably on a per capita basis have a greater impact on the economy than mm. the biggest ones, right? right. Um, and that was the motivation and the driver behind a lot of my mentoring work and the African Family Firms and Nonprofit mm. Association that myself and Sissy collaborated on, yeah. Very powerful. And, and, and I know you talked about the sort of difference between transformational versus transactional. That's come out very strongly. But how, how similar is your story to those that the others you're seeing and now, now mentoring and, and helping um, being part of that community? Is it very com- Is it very, a very similar story? Are there big differences? I'm curious mm. on that. Very, very similar. A lot of um, people that I mentor or are within the AFF community are have lived abroad, worked abroad, moved back. And, you know, they may not necessarily be running the family office and have as much autonomy as I did mm-hmm. on the family office side, but integrated into the family business. And they have had, 
you know, challenges and discovering their, their unique purpose, finding their leadership voice and collaborating with um, family and, you know, without Ooh. conflict, mm-hmm. um, having clarity as to where everything's going towards. Um, yes, very, very similar. Interesting. And, and do you think, um, and now with your energy, I mean, how much time are you spending on your own family work versus um, the, the wider world? I'm just curious how, how that's sort of pulling you. I mean, I was just having a conversation with a friend about this whole myth of balance. Mm. And I think, you know, different seasons require different levels of attention, mm. right? Like I said, I'm in a, a season of easing out of operations into mm. strategic. And the idea is so that by January, I'll be spending 20% of my time on our family empire and the rest of my time on mentoring and um, AFF work. At the moment, it's really 50-50, I would say, at this point in time, but it's a journey, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know, I'm just curious, because I, I guess the um, the risk, with, or not the risk, but one of the potential downsides is that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are quite, you know, um, hot-headed or they're, you know, they're very mm-hmm. stubborn anyway, certainly I, um, I speak as a, an entrepreneur myself, but, but you know, um, is there... A, is there that openness to even want to engage on this? And how do you, do you have to pry this open or is it already kind of open by the time you get there? I'm just curious in terms of where, you know, where they are, where people are on the journey in terms of other, other next gen. I mean, next gens typically are a bit more trusting than founders okay. because they see themselves in me. I see myself in them. Right. We are you know, similar. There's a lot of empathy and so trust is higher. Mm-hmm. So it's relative. It's been relatively, I wouldn't say easy, but easier okay. to to get clients on board. Right. And not all my clients are from Nigeria. Some are from Kenya, Ghana, South Africa, and some are not even African. Okay. Yeah. But in terms of getting the family businesses to come to the table to join a community, that's been harder work mm. not impossible we're, we're getting there and i think it's really there's an erosion of trust in our society we don't trust each other mm. um for whatever reason and so we know we know the culture we know the obstacles that we're facing and we're having to demonstrate high you know that mm. we're trustworthy it's not something that we take for granted we, and we being the next gen we being the i'm next saying we myself and sissy and okay, okay, oh, yeah, sorry, family sorry, firms. Yeah. and so really just been putting out a lot of yeah. content and serving the community to show that we are um we're genuine we're in this for life we're in this with you um but yeah, no, the conversation with Next Trends is relatively simple. It's really, is this particular offering the right time for, for you? Mm. Is this the right program you need at this point in time? Okay. Um, do you have the capacity at this point in time? Those are usually the conversations that with Next Trends. Really interesting. And can I just ask just in terms of um, the difference between Nigeria and other countries, do you see any marked difference between, you know, I think you mentioned South, South Africa, for example. Mm. Is it very different? Is it not? Honestly, when I have conversations with Africans all over, I think our, our, our journey uh, as Africans are quite uniting. Okay. <laughs> a lot of when I speak about the landscape with the Africa family, Nigerian family business mm-hmm. um, scene, I think a lot of it resonates with a lot of Africans. Bear in mind, probably cosmopolitan, city-based mm-hmm. Africans as opposed to rural-based Africans, right? Yeah, no, there are no stark differences. And as I said, a lot of next gens are very international. Yeah, um, lived abroad, worked abroad, and so we're all kind of just we have 
very similar kind of cultural worldviews. Mm. Um, yeah. And do you think um, this could, um, in terms of scaling, sort of her, her, and give that 2% statistic, which is pretty horrific in terms of 2% mm -hmm. of businesses are handed down successfully, if I understood right. Yeah. Um, could, are there other ways of scale? Right, right now, obviously, you're doing it in a very personal way with mentoring, but are there other ways to scale this, that these messages that you're uncovering mm -hmm. can help other others around, around the world? Around Africa, around Africa? I mean, it's, it's the, the market is underserved okay. and needs more family business advisors mm -hmm. that are um, adequately trained and equipped for this work to mm -hmm. serve the market. And we realized that. And so we're actually putting together in conjunction with um, a training institute out of the US, mm -hmm. a program to train existing, say, lawyers, accountants, or mm -hmm. um, investment managers that already have existing relationships with family businesses and want to deepen their understanding of succession planning, mm -hmm. family governance, and things. So. Um, the idea isn't to um, hug the whole market. It's not even feasible. I, I will just die. Um, but really, I'm driven by um, making that personal difference. I enjoy mentoring. Um, it's fulfilling for me. It's rewarding for me. It's rewarding to see, you know, next gens discover themselves. Yeah. It's rewarding for me to see them have clarity of purpose. Mm -hmm and have the tools to achieve their goals. Because I really believe living a life by design. Mm. Unfortunately, a lot of us next gens may tell us ourselves a story that we're not in control of our lives because that founder is quite a dominant and yeah, yeah, yeah. central figure in the family and the business and community. But that's a lie we tell ourselves. We are all in control of our lives. We all write the scripts, you know, um, we have the pen. Mm. Um, and it's really about gaining mastery. And I love helping them on that journey of gaining mastery of their lives, setting their life goals and putting in accountability mm. um, structures to see that they achieve those goals. Yeah, it's powerful. The side of a life script, I think, is um, my wife is, she's Moroccan, but she's a North African, but she, um, has been trained to be a, a psychotherapist. And that's one of the big themes coming out of what our life scripts are and how we can change. Mm. Maybe, maybe the last line of question as well was on, You've con clearly been focusing on the next gen as the entry point and a way to start the conversation. Is there an entry point with founders or is that too 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 difficult right now to, to do? Um, there, I guess there is an entry point with founders, but my passion is with the next gens, right? Um, and I actually think the next gens are the probably the best entry point into the whole family. Mm -hmm. And it's not a transactional relationship. That's just for, uh, I'm very long-termist. Mm -hmm. And the idea and the nature of the work we do is not just, you know, three months, not an audit, right? It's not, <laughs> it's not audit work. It's very long-term work mm -hmm. that often requires um, revisiting, rethinking, replanning based on changes in the family circumstances, the business circumstances or external conditions. So it's really about uh, building a long relationship with the family, but starting with the next gen. Amazing. And if it was just one last piece of advice for a, a next gen who you know, wasn't lucky enough to be mentored as part of the, the network you're building, what would it be overall? Or what, would it, what would you say to them? Mm, I mean, I think, especially in times of change, Maintaining motivation is, is really critical mm. and it can be challenging 
because in some instances, perhaps the family business is no longer viable um, and we have to then pivot to a new business. And I think it's important to stay curious yeah. and a curious mind is one that's able to see opportunity, challenge assumptions and perspectives and sees every situation as an opportunity to learn mm. instead of being intimidated by change is inspired. And another advice I would say is really work on your inner conviction and that's mm. your belief in yourself, strong knowing of who you are as an individual, not necessarily even speaking about the family and the business and really developing that almost faith that you will thrive in whatever circumstance that you find yourself in. Mm. Um, you will be resourceful. You'll just mm. make it work. Right. And then courage, you know, be being um, bold enough to act Mm. in spite of so much change so i would say work on those three c's they will they'll get you a long way powerful it's really funny even, even with school kids actually when i my, my previous life that was what it boiled down to for, for them as well in terms of being able to master this i mean this world of unknown unknowns to use a donald uh, Rumsfeld's unfortunate phrase so that's mm -hmm. interesting the parallel there but no it's a really powerful point i think what this conversation for me at least is, is um, you know, i've always i always thought about family succession family firms and business as a a more kind of you know this is going to be an awful time for next gen where they have to just bear with it till till the you know the session happens and so on but it's given me a lot of confidence that uh it can be can be done actually if, if the if the next gen takes the the, the driving sheets find that finds their purpose autonomy and, and and ways of developing mastery but i love that idea of you know the curiosity the um the, the confidence as well and that, that sort of self-assurance um and curiosity to keep keep driving and learning which is such a powerful piece so yeah, really inspiring story, and thanks for for sharing it with uh, uh, with me as well. Just really, really fascinating to hear. Thank you, thank you, Shara. That's been really fun having you. <laughs> no, great to chat, and yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah, um, also, as I, as I also work with other um, families in other parts of the world, I think there's a lot of interesting parallels here that uh, mm. can be brought over and really powerful insights. There. But I think more than anything, a, a real sense of optimism that. This can work, maybe that two percent can become you know, maybe five, ten, twenty percent difference in the future in many of our countries. Yes, for sure. For sure. Thanks, thank you. Thank you.